This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, November 5th, 2020. What will the Ontario budget mean for us? We're joined by the Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist with TD Bank to sort it all out. And surprising findings from the folks over at Ashley Madison when it comes to cheating spouses and the role politics play in their infidelity. All of this starts now. First, we are taking steps to protect people from this deadly virus by increasing our health investments to $15.2 billion. Second, we are building on our earlier relief to provide a total of $13.5 billion of direct support for families, workers, and employers, in addition to $11.3 billion in cash flow support. And third, we are removing barriers to recovery and providing $4.8 billion to protect and create jobs now and in the future. There you go, Rod Phillips, uh, just over an hour ago, tabling the budget in the legislature. Of course, all the billions that are being bandied about. Uh, remember when those used to be eye-glazing numbers and they get your attention? doesn't almost seem to be that way anymore. But to that end, uh, where we're going in a time of pandemic and post-pandemic, uh, a budget that's going to be a record of $38.5 billion as a deficit, $187 billion all in, uh, consistent with the government's summer projections, you might recall. And they say it's uh, also a path to balance that'll be presented in the 2021 budget. I'm thinking about a path to balance. Wow. Let's get Derek Burlton in here. Derek Burlton has joined us. He's the vice president and deputy chief economist with the TD Bank. Derek, good to have you on the Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Oh, hi, John. You know, I was kind of interested that uh, they're also saying they're going to have a path to balance in 2021. Should that even be a consideration at this point? Well, you know, it is sort of that all-important second leg. Now, to balance, uh, you know, I think economists are getting a little bit uh, uh, more flexible around, uh, you know, getting a deficit down to a more sustainable level. It doesn't necessarily have to be zero, and I guess the question is, what kind of time frame will they be looking at? But, you know, I think that is for another day. Um, you know, we did see the deficit in their three-year plan announced today fall uh, under uh, their baseline projection. And, and this year, it's a little bit more confusing because they actually have three scenarios. <laughs> so there's a lot of, lot of numbers that uh, can get bandied about. But, uh, you know, the deficit does fall over the next few years. And that's, I guess, the first step. Uh, but that debt burden, that's something that I tend to focus on. That keeps going up. So uh, it just shows you the legacy of this crisis. And it's not just a one-year thing. This is going to drag out, and it's just going to create a, a big challenge for the government as it starts to think about the second phase of its, uh, of its plan down the road. Well, you know, what you say is rather ominous. Do you uh, foresee that we might be entering a phase of structural deficits? Yeah, I, I mean, most economists do think that, you know, recovery is not going to be strong enough to create the revenues to just sort of magically deal with uh, a shortfall that even in year three of their plan is still north of $20 billion under at least two of their scenarios, their baseline included. So, um, you know, it's just hard to envisage such a hot run of growth to, to deal with a deficit. So what it means is that it's, you know, when they do plan their next few years' budgets, 
they're going to have to make some tough decisions at some point, at least to get the deficit further down, uh, barring uh, you know, a big jump in growth. Again, with Derek Burleton, VP and Deputy Chief Economist with TD Bank, uh, we're just unpacking some of the salient points in the budget tabled in the legislature uh, just over an hour ago by Finance Minister Ron Phillips. Now, what's interesting, the the three-year projection out and three scenarios, uh, which tends to lead me to believe, I mean, uh, they're just speculating. They really, I mean, uh, they're doing a best guesstimate on things, uh, but it's hard to pin this thing down because nobody really knows where we're going, correct? Yeah, and that's, I think most forecasters now, uh, you know, they're moving away from these, you know, one-line point estimates to providing ranges, providing different scenarios. It is so true. I mean, we don't know where the pan- where we're going to be in three months, six months. Is there a vaccine available midway through next year, which many of us do, in fact, embed in our forecasts, but there's question around that. What's the availability going to be like? So many questions. So I actually do give kudos to the government. A, they're among the first. I, I don't recall any other province this year. I mean, we're a bit earlier in Ontario to release a budget, at least in terms of, you know, going past the spring, uh, to, to come up with a multi-year framework. And uh, so at least there's a bit of roadmap there. Forecasting in today's world is uh, is a very difficult thing, no doubt. Derek, help me out here because they say the budget, this is Rod Phillips now, will begin to remove the biggest barriers to growth. Uh, did he do any of that today? Did he signal that? And what would those barriers be? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're nibbling around. I mean, it, it's, they're working within a very difficult environment. I, I think, number one, the focus is on uh, the pandemic, some of the pandemic supports. They've begun to lay the groundwork uh, for some of the stimulus longer term to help the recovery. There's a fair amount of infrastructure built into their medium-term plan. They've got infrastructure spending sitting at a higher level. You know, we know the broadband. You know, I think we're going to have to wait further details on on how they plan to spend that. Uh, You know, their hydro rate cuts that will certainly help businesses. I think most of the support is saving businesses some money where it's through you know, cuts in hydro rates through uh, lower employment, uh, health tax, payroll tax. Uh, but, you know, there's still a lot of unallocated money, um, John. And so I think they've left some powder dry to uh, provide some further announcements going forward. So they got a bit of a buffer there or a cushion, uh, a contingency fund, as it were. I'm kind of curious about this one as well. Now, uh, it was heralded as a a big development earlier this week when Doug Ford was announcing that uh, the long-term care facilities, there'd be an average of four hours of direct care every day. That would imply tens of thousands of PSWs needing to be hired. But this is only kicking in in 24-25. So you're four or five years out. Uh, Where's the sense in that, or does it take that long to get things lined up? Yeah, I think they're, uh, you know, they're, it's, it's a bit of a mix, because I think what they're relying to get the deficit down are some temporary shorter-term measures that expire. Um, you know, and they're also, I think it's important to point out that, uh, you know, uh, provinces in general are relying uh, uh, on the federal government to do a lot of the heavy lifting through this very difficult period, but they are in the best fiscal position to do so. So that, that's important to point out. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, John, what's behind that delay. Maybe it does take some time or, you know, they're waiting hopefully for a bit of a sunnier day when they can, uh, you know, spend a bit more on, on uh, this all-important area. 
You know, and small business has been uh, anxiously awaiting more help from the province. The bulk of it's coming by way of commercial rent, that is, uh, from the feds. And they changed the rules where it goes now to the tenant directly rather than through the landlord, which was a real bugaboo and uh, was not being subscribed to this uh, extent that they had hoped federally. But uh, what was it, the province, uh, did they do anything to step up and uh, maybe augment commercial rent for small business? I didn't see anything in here today, and perhaps that's something they're still uh, thinking about. Correct me if I'm wrong. I just, given uh, I've done a number of interviews and I've had a chance to go through the, the several hundred pages, but I did not see anything on that front. Um, so, again, it's not, it may still happen. I know it's something the CFIB, the small business uh, group, has been pushing for uh, to really help, as, as have others. Uh, so maybe that's something the government's still uh, thinking about as part of their, maybe some of their unallocated spending in, in the near term. What about increasing investment, so to speak, in the public sector, expanding the public sector? Uh, how would that square with the Ford government? Uh, well, increasing investment in the public sector. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you mean, mean in terms of hiring new health workers? Yeah, or, uh, expanding, yeah, expanding personnel. And uh, I mean, yeah. is that inevitable? You've got to do it now? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, the, just the supports are happening uh, all around the economy. And, uh, you know, certainly there seems to be a bit of a shifting mindset there. And I think it's not just happening in Ontario and Canada, but around the world, that a lot more investment is being focused in the public sector just to provide more support to the economy. So I think this is a, a global trend we're seeing, not, not unique to Ontario for which they could be forgiven, I guess, in the context of a global pandemic. Before I let you go, I've got to ask, I mean, the situation in the States. Now, if Biden wins, and it looks like he's the odds-on favorite here, uh, he's promised to increase corporate taxes from 21% to 28 Trump took them down to 21 from 35 uh, Is that going to help us here in Canada in terms of competitiveness? Yeah, I, I, that's something. It's sort of that... Uh two-edged sword there that, uh, you know, it might hurt growth prospects medium term in the U.S., which is our largest export market, but would make us more tax competitive. John, I don't see that happening uh, unless there's a miracle that the Democrats win the Senate, because I think uh, with a Republican Senate, I think Biden's going to have a lot of trouble getting his tax plan through. And even the stimulus, it's going to be have to be really watered down. So, um, that that's likely one of the outcomes if Biden wins the presidency, but uh, it's still a, a divided Congress. Right. And a Republican firewall, which I guess uh, they can take some kind of solace in. Uh, Derek, appreciate your weighing in this afternoon. <laughs> You're off on another interview, I guess. It's a cascade of interviews post-budget, uh, but thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks, John. You got it. Derek Burlton, VP and Deputy Chief Economist with the TD Bank. And Biden just made some noise about uh, feeling confident where this is all headed. Good. I don't know if he's got a timeline on it, but uh, it may not be resolved until, you know, the outside is uh, December 8, where this thing has to be finalized and uh, so that they can break for Christmas and inaugurate whomever on the 20th of January. But when it's got so uh, heated insofar as emotionalism and the rhetoric and all the rest of that, you wonder if it's uh, dividing households or dividing, in fact, relationships. And this is one of those key elements that uh, does surface from time to time, fraught with emotionalism. People having relationships or affairs uh, may also take into consideration political leanings of their partners uh, or prospective partners. The folks at, at Ashley Madison have compiled some data that uh, sort of spell that all out. Paul Keeble is the chief strategy officer for Ashley Madison, and he's weighing in on The Oakley Show this afternoon. Paul, good to have you back on board. Good afternoon. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back on again today. 
So what do you find, your data, uh, when it comes to politics playing a role in maybe uh, scuttling an affair or maybe uh, it's not as meaningful as one might assume? How, how did you guys break that down? So what we looked at is a couple of different things in terms of where people were voting, uh, how that differs from their, their spouse and from their affair partner, and how much does politics play a role. And what we found out for the most part, as it relates to at least the affair part, our members have told us majority don't really look to their part, their affair partner for their political views because they're there for a very specific need and that doesn't fit into it. But they do look at their primary relationship and say, you know, I do look and need some level of compatibility there. Though there were some interesting breakouts, particularly in terms of the female side of our membership, and they said more so than the men that they actually do look at politics when they're looking at their affair partner. All right. So what you're saying indirectly is when it comes to an affair uh, and compatibility, it's not necessarily predicated on stuff like uh, who you lean towards politically. <laughs> there are other criteria by which you evaluate a partner in an affair. Absolutely. They're looking to fulfill. I mean, I think the last time you and I chatted, we talked a lot about, about why women turn to uh, affairs when they're in a marriage. And it's oftentimes purely physical. So when you look at that, that kind of tells you why politics may not play a role. Though that said, we did have uh, about 20% of the women saying, you know, we are a little bit concerned. Uh, you know, if I'm a Republican, I'm, I don't want to hop into the, the bed of a Democrat. Though they have said that politics does make strange bedfellows. Well, that's true. Uh, and so when you uh, break it down by uh, gender here, uh, who's more likely to discuss politics with an affair partner? Women are. Um, women are far really? more likely because I think, you know, they tend to see uh, things in a more holistic viewpoint. And based on a lot of different uh, surveys we've run over the years and conversations I've had with members and even just in my own relationships, I see that women tend to look at things on the whole where men tend to compartmentalize things and treat things very differently. So how you view politics is not going to view matter how I view us as a relationship. Well, then as a percentage, like how pronounced is the uh, difference here between men and women? Like uh, how about women versus men when it comes to opposing political views as a deal breaker within an affair? Um, it isn't that big of a difference in terms of the affair. It's probably about a 10% difference. But in terms of, you know, looking down the hole, that's a pretty big split. And, and it's telling in terms of, you know, if you are looking to have an affair, what type of conversations you need to have when attracting someone, depending on if you're a man or a woman. I see. And does that apply in a marriage as well? I don't know if you guys cover off that beat, but uh, if you had to draw by way of a comparison how men versus women measure political compatibility, how important is it to each? So, well, th roughly 33% do not discuss politics with their spouse. So that tells you, you know, a little over, you know, 60% are discussing it. That said, it's pretty even on the male and female side. So men and women, women with 32%, they don't discuss politics with their spouse, and men with 33% not discussing it, which tells you that for a predominant amount of people, that politics does play a role in their primary relationship. And it's the inverse on the affair side. It's about 75% of women uh, don't, you know, are, are, are not concerned about being aligned with their affair partner, where 81% of men are not concerned about being aligned. So much bigger numbers in terms of politics being important on the, on the primary relationship or your, your husband or wife. 
All right. And so finally, Paul, I mean, if politics is not that significant insofar as being a deal breaker in, a, well, I don't want to say a relationship, but it's an affair. Uh, it's a type mm-hmm. of relationship. Uh, if that's not the big deal breaker, what tends to be more often than not for men and or women? In terms of why an affair is going to work or not. So for women, they're really looking at the physical side. Are the men going to be able to fulfill the need that is missing in their existing primary relationship? Where interestingly enough, for men, it's primarily the emotional validation. Am I going to get my emotional needs met in an affair because men feel they're not getting that in their primary relationship? And that's really an interesting concept uh, in terms of why people have affairs, because it's a bit opposite of what we generally think. There you go, women. It's to fulfill some physical need for men. It's emotional. Uh, who knew? Although it seems like uh, that makes perfect sense. I appreciate very, very much, Paul, you're weighing in and giving us a snapshot of what's going on, because I'm sure as we're speaking, you know, with the politics roiling things south of the border, uh, there may be a whole lot of folks in affairs may, maybe <laughs> recalibrating things or not, if it isn't that significant as you say. Thanks so much for your time, as always. My pleasure, John. Bye. You got it. Paul Keeble, Chief Strategy Officer for Ashley Madison. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Thursday, November 5th, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 